So this is one of those sermons where um, later one or two of our elders and my wife might remind me that I'm the one that writes the sermon series. And so when I get frustrated because I create a situation where I don't have as much time to talk about everything as I want, you can always remind me that no one handed me this Sermon on the Mount series and said, you should teach out of Matthew 26, 19, and 5 today. I'm sure that'll be fine. What we're trying to do is hear the teaching of Jesus, either for the first time or for the 15th time and learn from it. We're also trying to see him as a human being. The way that we're doing that is we're looking mostly at the Sermon on the Mount, but then I'm jumping around to the rest of Matthew because if we're only looking at the human face of Jesus and not hearing his teaching, we're not getting as full of a perspective as we could and vice versa. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches some really interesting and perhaps almost certainly disorienting things. I wonder how many times you've heard someone say you should read your Bible. Or how many times you have encouraged someone to read your Bible? I was thinking this morning, if I saw my daughter reading in Matthew, I probably would be like, oh great. But what if she was in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32 that I'm about to read to you? Would I even catch it and wonder if she had any questions about the things that Jesus brings up that he's then going to bring up again and again? The text goes like this. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. It's the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So I think it's terrific that we encourage people to read their Bibles. I think oftentimes we would say, start with Matthew, and then right here is some pretty um, juicy teaching, challenging teaching. I'm fascinated because Jesus is portrayed in culture back and forth and back and forth. He tells all these stories. I could tell the story of the Good Samaritan, and I don't think our culture would do anything but cheer for most of the heart of that, though there are some pieces of it perhaps we don't understand. And yet we read something like this from Matthew chapter 5, and you're like, wow, Jesus is pretty old school. Jesus talked about money all the time. About 15% of the time that he opened his mouth and taught, he was referencing money. But oftentimes it was in a parable. And so we'll listen to a parable like, that sounds sweet. We don't consider it perhaps as directly as we could. But then we come to a straightforward teaching like this with a parable in it about the destructiveness of lust and of divorce. And we're like, wow. This is why a pastor that I worked for years ago is really fond of saying Jesus is more conservative and more progressive than probably anyone that you've met. Both. More progressive in in his welcoming of anyone 
more conservative, so to speak, in his morals. I actually don't even like those words because we all have our own definitions for them. And if you tease out that statement and try to add some political nuance to it, it'll probably fail. But it's also kind of interesting. His name's Scott Sauls. You can follow him on Twitter. He says this about once every two months. You can have a snarky reply if that's your thing. I was at Riverside Church for years and a man who was not a follower of Jesus became a follower of Jesus there. He was in education. He, he thought about things uh, a little left of a typical attender of Riverside at that time. And he said to me, and I took this as a huge compliment. He said, I feel like Riverside Church has a very liberal face and a conservative soul. And again, I'm using those words that I don't like very much. But I took it as a compliment because what he was saying was that church welcomes everyone. And then expects them to take the Bible seriously. And what if Jesus had never talked about our sexuality? Would we trust him to teach us about life? How much of our relative existential angst flows out of that? Jesus claimed to be God and taught about the flourishing with God life and never referenced it. How could we consider him relevant? Thousands of years before Me Too, Jesus explains the problem. At least in some measure. The first part of the um, outline that I wrote is the sinners and the self-righteous approach Jesus. At the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking broadly. We'll look at some texts where he's speaking a little more directly to a handful of people. And to all those who approached him, as there were many listening, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, anyone who looks at woman lustfully. I believe the reason he, he singled out men and women the way he did was because he was speaking into a very patriarchal society, meaning this teaching applies to men and to women. The sinners and the self-righteous approached Jesus and have very different experiences. So there's an... In both the teachings of Jesus and in the stories we know about Jesus and the people that came to him with questions, the self-righteous come to Jesus and they're looking for rules. And in my opinion, one of the most subtly powerful things that Jesus does is he teaches in such a way that you know exactly what he's saying. I mean, if I read this text again and I say, do you think lust is destructive according to Jesus? Yes. Do you think divorce is destructive according to Jesus? Yes. But you cannot take the teachings of Jesus and turn them into a precise rule about these things. You can't. And so one of the most fascinating things is in the midst of Jesus' teaching, in a clear fashion, you cannot take it and bind it up into a box which is showing one of the most subtly powerful things Jesus does. It shows that humans, especially self-righteous humans, abuse each other through authority and boundaries and laws that they create. And this is why churches have to be so careful. Because we believe in the morality Jesus teaches. But then how do we encourage one another in it? We can't not encourage one another in it. He taught it so clearly. And yet, Jesus resists presenting it in a way that we can have a precise definition. At the time, there were two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. Jesus is contrasting their views. You can Google them at your leisure if you want. One of them taught half of what Jesus taught, that you can get divorced 
the grounds of sexual immorality, but he would never have taught about remarriage that way. The other one taught, and his teachings were much more accepted, that, you, that men could divorce women incredibly easily if she burned the toast. I'm not kidding. You could divorce her. This is why Jesus is speaking so strongly, I believe, to the male. The teaching applies to men and to women. And he's teaching so strongly. This is what it took to divorce a woman in the first century. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's over. She has no legal recourse. She doesn't vote. She can't own property. To the self-righteous, Jesus is subtly teaching that humans abuse one another with their boundaries and authorities and laws. It doesn't mean authority is not a good thing. It is. That doesn't mean we don't have the law. We do. It doesn't mean boundaries are not important to understand the human institutions in light of the commands of God. They are. But we often hurt each other in the midst of those rules. That's to the self-righteous. To the sinner, Jesus is lovingly stating you're hurting yourself. Lust and or divorce are hurting you. You're kidding yourself if you don't know the destruction you're causing to your community and to yourself. Through the addiction of your imagination or of how you spend your time, your eyes and your mind and your hand. And at the same time that he teaches that with great clarity, lust and divorce are incredibly destructive forces. We also have this text in Matthew 26. Try and imagine this, would you? In verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And the disciples saw it and they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And sinners and the self-righteous approach Jesus and he teaches with clarity and he welcomes all. His message is for everyone. It's an old Message that was beginning before what I just read. And I like to back up sometimes because we need to remember the context, especially of teaching so precise as the damage of lust and destruction. The story doesn't begin with Genesis. You know that, right? God exists in Trinity. In Trinity. So before the creation of the world is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit enjoying one another's company. The angels are created. Then the world is created and it's good. God has fellowship with men and women. Then they stop trusting 
that He knows what's best for them and they sin and that begins breaking the world. And then redemption comes to earth. So it's happening in Matthew 5 and Matthew 26. That's the beginning of redemption. It's the beginning of the end of sin and of death. And He welcomes all into that story through His work. Why am I talking about that in the midst of talking about lust? Because the promises always precede the commands. The way they said it in seminary was the imperatives always come after the indicatives. God's pursuit of us is 100% of the first move. Then we respond in love by following and trusting Him. Jesus taught that lust is destructive not only because it's destructive, but because there's healing. There are a number of ways that our, I can't figure out if our culture thinks everybody's broken or nobody's broken. I do know that within Christian culture, there are a bunch of ways that we mess up this teaching. One is we call it a guy problem. And we say that every guy has it. Two things about that are a lie. One, not every guy struggles with this. There's victory. There's healing. Jesus is not a mean teacher. How? You got to tell somebody. You got to run away from it. Probably need either some counsel or some spiritual direction, depending on the level of the addiction. Some people can simply leave addiction. Others cannot. The other lie, and all guys struggle with it, pretends that women don't struggle with it. The last study that I read, 60% men fit 40% of women in, in churches. Struggle with this. Lust is a destructive force, not only to men, but to women. And there's healing. Divorce is destructive, and there's healing. One of the most kind of regularly challenging things that happens to me with with sometimes followers of Jesus, sometimes not followers of Jesus, is when they tell me they got a divorce, I say, I'm sorry. And they're like, no, no, it's a good thing. And I could even grant some of their reasons for a good thing, especially someone who's in an unsafe situation. But it still was incredibly painful, even if it was the right thing to do. Right? So I I love awkward situations, so I just walk right into that. I don't enjoy that particular awkward situation, but my wiring is to... Enjoy awkward situations. I just say, I'm still sorry, even if it was the right thing. I imagine that was really painful. And part of the reason that this is under the heading of Jesus' messages for everyone, in addition to the fact that there is healing from these wounds, there is real life that has already been purchased for us that we can learn to enjoy through faith and trust, through community. But the desires that you have are good. The desires that we have for intimacy, the desires that we have for community are good desires. And yet, not all of our good desires will be met in this life. A very interesting text that I'm not going to read because of time and because I have a whole other point to make, is in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus teaches on this again. And Peter says, really? And Jesus says, yes, really. And then he decides to honor the single life. 
you know, in most religions and cultures, it's kind of implied and assumed that a married person has more worth, value, dignity, that's the next step or whatever. Christianity does not teach that. Neither in the Old Testament nor the New Testament. You're made in the image of God and you're an entirely whole person. However you identify yourself, whether you're married or not, If you read Matthew chapter 19, you'll see that in some very curious but clear language that the single life is just as whole, if not more, depending on how you interpret 1 Corinthians 7, where these teachings are repeated by the Apostle Paul to a church with different nuances and points. His message is for everyone, and yet the strength of it, the power of it, is not everyone can receive. Jesus' words. That while his love is for everyone, the invitation of Jesus is not to add something to your life. You know that, right? This is not getting religion. Okay, I have this figured out, and I have this figured out, and I have this figured out. I need to add some religion. That is not the invitation of Jesus. Though grace is free... And God's love is for everyone. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to die to yourself. And if you're sitting here thinking, I don't want to die to myself, I'm fine. Well, I'm glad you're here. Continue to consider the gospel of Jesus. But if you're sick of yourself, the gospel of Jesus is such good news. And by sick of yourself, I mean sick of asking your heart to give itself peace. I mean you've realized that your hands and your eyes and your imagination are not that great at loving others in and of themselves. Putting our faith in Jesus, trusting Him with our, in this case, our eyes and imaginations, also our hands and our hearts and our decisions and our mind and our past and our present and our future is not an add-on to our life. It's not a section of our life. It's an entire new life. Later in Matthew 19, Jesus says, or Peter says to Jesus, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, we left everything. Does that matter? And Jesus says, I'm paraphrasing, yes. Because that is the with God life. Trading our allegiances to begin with Him and to be holy to Him. Our body, our skin, our imagination, our eyes, our hands. Oftentimes, Christian communities um, are challenging both for those in them and for those looking on the outside because what it looks like, especially when we're looking at teachings like this, is that our hope is to manage our sin. That what we're trying to do is be a group that, that sins a little less. Listen, that's not the point. Is sin destructive? Absolutely. But what's the point It's not to sin less. It's to trust Jesus more as He leads us into a life of flourishing here and eternally. Whether we are married 
or single, regardless of how we identify ourselves, the offer of Jesus is not one of sin management, but to become a new creation. To leave everything and trust Him. To realize we can't save ourselves. We don't know how to love well. He offers to save us from ourselves into life with Him where we flourish in all of the ways that He describes. The offer is not that that we can learn to manage our sin. The offer is to become a new creation in Him by saying, I trust you with my heart and with my decisions. With my mind and my imagination and my skin and my treatment of others and my words and my hands because I don't naturally know what to do with all this. But I would like to flourish. I trust you to give me new life. Heal me. Teach me in all these ways. Would you pray with me? Jesus, your teachings are challenging to us. You challenge our assumptions and our culture and our imaginations. And you offer healing of all of those things. And we receive that healing through trust. Would you help us to trust you with our hope, our lives and bodies and relationships? Amen.